Happy New Year. All right. <laughs> Why don't you guys get up on your feet, find somebody, and tell them good morning.
Good morning, everybody. Wow, you are the people that survived the great sixth season of 2018. Did you guys get sick during the holiday season? This brought, you, you did not. Well, you stayed alone, John. But I'm glad to see you all this morning. We got a bunch of people who are sick. And uh, man, this, this long thing. But you survived. Good for you. And I hope you had a good New Year's Eve. And uh, we're really excited uh, here on the New Year and what we're going to be studying together. We're going to study Jesus in 2019. Is that all right? All right. So, well, I'm glad to have you a part of it. So uh, hopefully, if you'll take your worship guide uh, and open it up, I want to highlight just a few things. And one of those things is this insert right here. And I want to encourage you, it is not too late. Of course, you can do it anytime. But read the Bible through the year. Make it a commitment this year to read through the scriptures. And I've been talking the last couple gatherings about this particular program. It's free. It's an app you can put on your smartphone if you have one. You can do it on a computer if you don't. But it's Francis Chan, a great evangelical pastor out of uh, California. Uh, he has a team of people to put this together. And they have put together uh, video, little video vignettes that happen on most days that help you understand where you are in scripture. And if you've tried to read through the Bible in a year, that's where they lose us. Right around, um, well, if you make it through Exodus into Leviticus, you're, you're about three or four chapters in and you can't stay awake because you don't know the significance of it, and this helps you keep going. So uh, it's, it's part commentary. About 15 to 20 minutes a day is all it takes, and you will be through the Bible in less than a year in context. So I encourage you to consider that. Uh, if you have any questions, we'd be glad to help you along with that. Um, and uh, so please consider doing that this year. It'll help your understanding of God and especially the, the contextual place of why Jesus did what he did and, and all. But enough on that for right now. So I uh, just want to encourage you that way. Um, and your worship guide. Well, if you're visiting with us, welcome to Carpenter's Way. 
We are glad to have you in our family this morning, and, and, and now your family. We've welcomed you. We're just glad to have you here, and it's our hope and our prayer, whether it's online or in this room, it's our hope and our prayer that you fall in love with Jesus because he already loves you, and uh, we want you to discover that, and we're looking forward to doing that together. This morning, we are beginning a new series. Uh, it is the look at the life of Jesus in chronological order. In other words, we're going to be using all four Gospels and going through the life of Christ as, as presented to us from the perspective of the four apostles, or the, the, the four Gospels, not four apostles, but four Gospels. So that starts this morning, and this morning I'm excited because I get to join you, uh, Zach Wilkie, my son, graduate of Moody Bible Institute, student at, uh, at Southwestern Seminary right now, working on his Master's in Theology, uh, in Master of Divinity in Theology, will be uh, he's going to be doing this series with me, uh, not every other week or anything like that, but periodically uh, he has made me promise that he can teach through uh, the temptations of Jesus, but his passion is the incarnation of Christ. And, and for those of us who grew up in the non-liturgical church, if you didn't grow up Lutheran or Catholic or Presbyterian or Episcopal, then you don't realize probably that today is uh, traditionally in the church the day of Epiphany, and that is the day that the church has traditionally celebrated the wise guys coming to Jesus' side. And uh, why is that significant on the church calendar? Because uh, this is the day we celebrate that the message of the gospel is not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. Because uh, we don't know how many wise guys there were, but however many wise guys showed up at the house where Jesus was living with his parents, sometime between birth and two years of age, uh, these were not Jews. These were people who came to worship. And, of course, he accepted their gifts. And so it's the day in the, on the church calendar that we celebrate the fact that uh, Jesus came not just for the Jews but Gentiles as well. And what a perfect day for us to set off a discussion on who Jesus is from Scripture. And so Zach's job this morning, and I know he'll do a fine one, is to unsettle you, is to get you to rethink what you think you know about Jesus. And the important stuff I have no doubt you know, why he came that he came to save you, that salvation is to anyone, no matter what they've done or who they are, by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. But boy, to put him in context, uh, it just changes the way you see him. It's like going from black and white, small TV, to high definition, 50-inch or 70-inch or however big you can afford. So, But it's going to be a great time. So we're excited. This is going to be a year at Carpenter's Way of digging deeper in the Word and having conversations together about real-life issues in light of the Scriptures. So it's going to be a good year, and we hope that you're actively involved. Um, I know uh, the last few weeks we've been talking about year-end giving. We will give you the final total. The finance people told me not to, uh, that we don't have those this week. We'll have them next week. But I do want to thank you. Uh, you gave, and uh, we end the year in a strong position, and uh, money was able to go is going to be able to go into our building. And so we're... we're over halfway, I can say that. We're over halfway to what we need to have bathrooms, and new bathrooms. And uh, for those of us who are visiting, you should go before you come until the building's been done. I, I'm just kidding. I'm teasing. Uh, we, uh, but but it is, uh, we are excited about that, and God willing, we'll be able to do that over the next year if, if the Lord continues to bless and you're able to give. So thank you. Uh, I, 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 don't, I know you know this. Uh, a couple things. Number one, you know how much I hate talking about money because it seems like every church, every ministry wants more. Um, and so I always say that if you're visiting, this, you don't need to give here. This is for those of us who attend regularly. But I want to remind you that it is only by your giving that we're able to do what we do. We send, we send over, we, we, we give as a church well over $100,000 a year just to missions. Uh, uh, that's uh, over 10%, probably about 15 to 16% of our budget goes to world missions uh, and local missions as well. I want to be careful how I express that. Not to mention taking care of business here 
Uh, we, we, we have scholarships for short-term mission trips. Uh, we are actively, the money that you give goes towards ministry and people and God's work all across the globe. And that would not happen if you didn't give, and I want to thank you. And it's easy for me to talk about this morning because, because, <laughs> because we ended the year okay. And like I said, we'll talk more about that. Our year-end goal is always to pay back the deficits we make during the year, and then the extra money goes towards projects, missions, or in this case, the building renovation. So I guess this is my way of saying thank you for your faithfulness. Um, like I said, you know how much I, I hate talking about money because it's such a distraction in the modern church, although I know it's necessary. So thank you. And uh, uh, keep giving regularly as, uh, as God blesses you. Cheerful giving is the model. Uh, don't stop now because things can go south really fast. This is what we do. It's part of it. It's giving of our time. It's giving of our wealth. It's giving back to the Lord for all he's given. But I just want to take a moment to say thank you. You make in, uh, ministry uh, fun and easy about 92.7% of the time. Uh, so I, but I, I just want to thank you for that. Um, Women's Bible studies information is there. Everything starts up again this week. Men's Bible studies Tuesday morning. Uh, so be involved in those things. Wednesday night, we're starting back up. And we're going to make some changes over the next few months, but we're going to get through. Those of you who have never been to a Wednesday night, you need to come out and check it out. We've got children's ministry and student ministry. And then for adults, we do Bible study. And uh, so that's Wednesday night starting at 630. I was also asked to mention that our Christmas cards are out on those tables. We collect Christmas cards or exchange them here. So make sure as you leave on that round table that you look to see if anybody, uh, there's any other Christmas cards for you. Um, the only other announcement that I want to make this morning, and I know I've done a lot, and that is a personal announcement. This is of a private nature for our church family. We have a problem. Every pastor does, but we have a problem, and I'm going to tell you about it and our solution. And that is that you are our family. And so, so twice in our life, our kids are going to get married. And uh, so the, the discussion is, how many people do you invite? Well, this wedding that's going to take place in, on the 9th of March is going to actually take place in Fort Worth. So we're not inviting all of you. Instead, what we're doing is actually in your worship guide, it's, it's had, there's a save the date on the 23rd of March, which is after they've been married and come back from the honeymoon, we're going to have a church-wide party. It's going to be a reception for you to come and get to know Hannah and get to know Zach a little bit more, the man. And uh, would you guys stand up for just a second so they can look at you? This is what they look like. So you can sit down now. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, we, we, we want you all to be there. And so this is, this is the way we're going to do that. Uh, without spending $4.2 billion and uh, shipping you all. If we could, we'd put you all on a big plane and we'd fly you to Fort Worth and we'd have a big old cowboy party. Look. Hey, look, you guys. I turned a corner this year. I have determined. I know a lot of you determined to lose weight. I determined to eat more deep-fried foods. But this year, I'm going to wear cowboy boots and I'm going to say yee-haw at least three times. I've been in Texas for 14 years and I'm feeling pretty good about it. But So, so please... Number one, please don't get your feelings hurt. Uh, it is a small wedding. It's, it's going to be in a chapel, it's, and uh, it's, it's going to be over in Fort Worth. But that's how we're doing that. Having said that, we're going to throw a church-wide reception party for them here. And so you can come and hug their neck and get to know them. So I expect you all to show up to that event. There will be enough cake for you and, and all, but, but I hope you understand. If, if that's a problem for you, come talk to me. At, uh, my email is jeffbonin at cwbc.org. Thanks for understanding, but we didn't want anybody's feelings hurt. So we'll keep talking about that as it comes and let you know. And, uh, and uh, Hannah's going to be in her wedding dress. 
Right, Hannah? Yeah, now she can't exactly say no. And Zach's going to be in his wedding dress, right, Zach? So, all right, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward at this time. Oh, man. Let's, uh, let's pray. Let's commit the rest of our time to the Lord. We sure love you guys, man. Father, thank you um, that in the midst of chaos of the world, uh, in the midst of, of, of the flow of life, the ebb and flow, the good moments, the difficult moments, we have you and you have given us each other. And it is my prayer that 2019 is a time where Carpenter's Way folks rem re remember how cool it is to be part of the family of God. Too often we don't think about the value of it until somebody we love dies, and then we need people to come around us and love on us. Lord, I pray that we would value it without tragedy. I pray that we would value each other. I pray that we would come not just to receive, but to give, to care for others, to love on others, to pray for each other. Father, I pray that your name would be lifted up as never before in this church. Lord Jesus, we want to be your family that, that lifts each other up and, and spurs each other on um, to good deeds and to trust and to dependence on you. So I thank you for this morning and I thank you for what you're doing in our lives and, and the lives of those within our family and we just ask that you would, you would bless all of that. And Lord, for this morning as Zach comes and, and he oh, begins this conversation about who you really are, not, not who we perceive or wish you were, but who you really are, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would bless him you would bless his words. I pray that the ideas and thoughts of Zach would fade away so that the words of God would endure forever from your word. We want to know you from your word, not from our thoughts or our feelings. Uh, those are valid, but they need to be aligned with Scripture. So I pray that you would do that this morning. So I thank you for the family here. I thank you for those that are traveling back, preparing for school that starts tomorrow. I pray for those who are sick that you would bring healing to them. But I pray above all else that your name would be glorified today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Worship with us.
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need.
by grace alone somehow I stand where ignorant angels fear to tread invited by redeeming love before the throne of God above he pulls the clothes with nail-scarred hands into his everlasting arms. When condemnation grips my heart and Satan tempts me to despair, I hear the voice that scatters fear. Yeah. 
amazing song. For those of you who walked in late or do not know, my name is Zach Wilkie. I am, I've been an intern here for many years. I grew up in this church. My dad is the pastor, the lead pastor here, and so it is a privilege to be here. Um, I, as he mentioned, I just graduated from Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and now I'm attending Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. So good to be back in Texas. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Uh, it's probably the most hallelujahs I'm going to get through the whole sermon, but that's okay. Um, it, it's always a privilege to be here. It really, really is, because I, I love preaching. I, I love preaching, but I really love preaching here, because it's my church family. It's where I grew up. It's always such, such a privilege. So I am very, very excited about today. I'm excited about this series, um, and if you know me, you know this is something I'm very, very, very passionate about. So uh, it, we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to get into the nitty-gritty and the fun stuff of what it means to really study Christ. Um, it is a, 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 an intense and fun endeavor, and we're going to do it together. It's going to be fun, and I'm very, very excited. But before we jump in, I want to pray. Um, I want to pray that um, God, be, God be with us in this study, with us today. And I ask that you pray for me and you pray with me. Um, teaching about Christ is no small manner. Um, because while you study the scriptures on your own, a lot of the formulation that we have about Christ happens together. And so we want God to kind of grow us and edify us together and, and expand our minds beyond just what we know in our own worldview. We want to grow together. So I pray that you, you pray with me and for me as I preach. Because this is an amazing, amazing like process, right? We get to open the word of God together in a safe place and study and, 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 and just dive into the word. It's an amazing experience. So please pray with me and for me. Um, and with that, I'm going I'm to go and pray for us. Father, we, we thank you for this time. God, it is such a privilege to study you. Um, thank you so much for, for everything that you're, you've done, what you're doing. God, thank you for Christmas. What an amazing, amazing time to, to lead into where we are now, and that's studying you. There's so much to dive into, God, so I pray that today you have your way. Let my words fade away, as, as Dad prayed earlier. Let my words fade away and let yours stay. God, grow us, expand our minds into, into knowledge of you, into growing in you, and change our lives radically through this time and through this study. It's in your name. Amen. May the force be with you. Amen. This, of course, is from Star Wars, right? But we all know it, and we know the line. We know where it comes from. How about this one? Uh, you need me on that wall. You know that one, right? Right? <laughs> How about this one? I'm going to make him an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> you know that one, right? Okay, that's a good one. Uh, there's no place like home. You guys know that one? Wizard of Oz? That's a good one. What about this one? I'll be back. <laughs> the Terminator? Uh, this is a short one, but see if you guys catch this. Yo, Adrian! <laughs> and one of my favorites, life is like a box of chocolates. Forrest Gump. <laughs> no, all right, so we know these lines, right? Right? Awesome, right. We know these lines because we, we, many of us perhaps grew up watching these movies. We were raised on these movies, and we most of us, I imagine, love these movies. 
not just because of the movie, but because of the memories that are tied to the movie, right? You could have been sitting with your family watching Star Wars in a theater when it first came out. You could have seen the Rocky movies in high school or college, and you just thought they were the coolest thing. We have nostalgia and memories that are tied to these movies. And the reason we often will come back to popular movies like these, like The Godfather or The Terminator or all these movies, we come back to these is because of the nostalgia and, and history we have with these movies. Truly, that's a big element of movies, right, is to feel nostalgia and to feel kind of outside of this world and, and feel experiences past. But the fact is, the reason we love these movies is because all of us bring stuff to the movie, right? So all of us bring past history, memories, and events that we love, that we want to remember to the movies, to each of, each of these movies. And, and, and this is very similar to Christ. Everyone, this is just the nature of life, right? And food, you name it, 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 nostalgia is a powerful motivator. Just memories, we all have assumptions and preconceived ideas about movies, about food, about you name it. But we do this also with Christ. And I use movies as an illustration, but, but the, the reality is, while it is fun with movies, this is a dangerous thing with Christ. Because while we're supposed to kind of remember memories, we're supposed to remember events with movies, we have to d- deny ourselves with Christ. And so what, what we're going to be looking at today is an issue. It's this issue primarily. It's what are we bringing to Christ that it disables us from really seeing who he truly is. See, more often than not, our preconceived notions, they don't actually aid any way as we approach knowledge of God. They actually hurt us, and they cause us to derive some sort of false truth or opinion about who Christ is. And in fact, this is actually where heresies come from. Surely Christ couldn't have done this, so he had to have been this. Boom, you have a heresy. And what we're going to be looking at is Christ as Scripture declares, not as we see him, but as as he truly is. So we're beginning a new series on Christ. And and, and we have to spend this time uh, looking at how we misunderstand and how we can often misperceive Christ. So today's going to be, we're going to look at three core attributes of God, but we're also going to be looking at a big, uh, the big issue here, and we're going to kind of be talking like ideologically. Why do we have a hard time truly seeing who Christ really is? And so I ask that you stick with me. Uh, You bear with me. We're going to have a lot of fun, I promise. But this is, this is very, very important. Before we even jump into a study on Christ, we have to talk about this. We have to. Now maybe, I, I get it, maybe you're hearing like, Zach, I understand, you know, what you're saying, but, but is this really an issue? Is it really an issue to truly know who Christ is? is that, isn't that the pastor's job to know Christ deeply and then to teach us perhaps more simpler or whatever? There's a question that Christ asked Peter in Matthew 16. And, he's, and, he, and truly he'll ask all of us when we face him in eternity. The question is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This question is central to, to the, our theology and just our beliefs. Like, how, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Christ is? This is the axis on which every, every element of our belief in Christ pivots right here. This question. This is the pivot point. And I would argue that most issues in the life and in church 
actually surround our perception of who Christ is. We talk over one another. And and then we have church divisions. Because one person thought Christ was supposed to do this. One person thought Christ was supposed to do this. When in reality, all of us are just bringing preconceived ideas about who Christ is to the table. Because all of us have a slightly different understanding and struggle to convey who Christ really is. In fact, if I was to take a microphone around the room, I'm not, don't worry. But if I was, and I was to ask, who is Christ, all four or five hundred of you, we would probably get several hundred different answers. Is that a problem? Why can't we agree? See, there are so many different doctrines and beliefs of who Christ is. Now, don't get me wrong. Christ is actually like an inexhaustible conversation. You'll never run out of things to talk about or say. So we're not talking about that. But like the true like confession and statement of who Christ is and what he's doing and what his life was about, there's too many opinions. And this, of course, roots in the fact that we can't even convey who ourselves are. We have no idea how to comprehend our flesh. We have no idea. We say we do, but when struggle or hurt comes, we are blown away by why it could happen. I've seen many, many Christians subconsciously convert from Christianity to some sort of karma Buddhist hybrid when suffering enters their life because they can't understand why suffering could exist in their life if Jesus died for me. We struggle to comprehend how to manage temptation. We have a hard time understanding why temptation could be so strong after salvation since God has made me new and and, and we base most of our spiritual performance off of where our emotions are in that process. We constantly tiptoe on a line of truth where we end up tripping on like a lack of understanding of some topic and then we catch ourselves with heresy. This is a problem. I'm very serious about this. This is a problem. This is why people from the outside look at the church and wonder why we're so wishy-washy a lot of times. Because we can't agree. We cannot agree on the core doctrines of who Christ is. And I'm not just talking in word. I'm talking in the way we live our lives. And when I talk about the church here, make sure you understand I'm talking about the big church, not just here, the big C, like evangelicals as a whole. I love you guys. Yeah, we struggle, to, we, we, we struggle with this. We, we often look forward to eternal life, but then we have actually no idea how or what that life looks like. But we live our lives in the assumptions of what that life will look like, and then our Christian lives reflect what we believe about this, and then how we treat others, but it then results in multiple different Christian lifestyles, So you have one Christian leader telling you you need to be living like this, and then you have another Christian leader telling you you need to be living like this, when in reality the issue isn't how you should be living, it's they disagree on the core attributes of God. Hear me out. When it comes to belief in Christ, evangelicalism, like like our circle in in, in the West and, and truly the world, is filled with lukewarm followers living in a hot and cold world, so Christianity, like I said, appears wishy washy to a lot of those looking out from the outside. We often can't even agree on what kind of worship music to play. This is because modern Christianity, especially in the West, 
is riddled with moralistic therapeutic deism. That's a really big word. Follow me here. This term was coined by a couple sociologists, Christian Smith and Melinda Denton, who studied uh, Christian teenagers a couple, uh, about a decade ago in a book called Soul Searching, The Religious Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. The term has grown in popularity and one that we talked a lot about at Moody um, in the study of Christians within the church. And it sounds daunting, but it simply means this. Moralistic therapeutic deists are people who believe a God exists and ordered the world. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except to resolve a problem. And good people go to heaven when they die. When I first read these qualities uh, a few years back when I, in, a, in a class I took on the Incarnation at Moody, I was blown away by how similar it is to many cultural Christian lifestyles. To the average church, going, uh, like going through the Christianity, they wouldn't confess these verbally, of course, but their lives do. Because this, this is where most evangelicals find themselves today, because they, they don't know how to answer the hard questions of God. Moralistic, therapeutic deists only come to God when they need him. He doesn't really have a name, and he is supposed to make you feel better. Christ doesn't have a face or a name. He is just a figment of happy feelings and out-of-body worship experiences when life gets depressing. Is that Christ? No. But that's what many people teach Christ to be. He's an experience. Dear ones, my, we, 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 we and myself included even struggle to, to, to see ourselves and our flesh as it truly is. We wrestle with temptation-filled, like, fallen flesh, and, 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 and we struggle with how that works with our perfectly redeemed souls. And then we struggle to see how God can allow suffering in our bodies when his goal was really to save us from sin. And, and we have no understanding whatsoever of what the redemption on the day of the Lord will really look like with our bodies. Like many Christians assume their bodies will simply just be discarded when in reality God will redeem our flesh into new creations. So Christians then fall into the often age-old heresy of Gnosticism, saying anything physical is bad, anything spiritual is good. Now, I know that's big words, but I'm, we'll explain this in a minute. A lot of Christians would, would say that, though. If I was to ask you, is the physical world good? We would say no. We would say no most of the time. I'm not talking about sinfulness. I'm not talking about flesh, just the God-created God world. We would say no, because what we truly believe inadvertently is that only the spiritual realm is good. Just those happy feelings we get in the early mornings when we're drinking coffee and reading scripture. Because that's Christianity. In addition to this, we as human have a very hard time seeing our own messiness. So often we put it on Christ to make us feel better about ourselves. We then attempt to overhumanize or underestimate God's uh, godness or Christ's godness to make him look more like us. When we are called to be Christ-like, that doesn't mean making Christ look like us. See, the fact is, Christ is who he is. If you want one statement from this series, that's it. Christ is who he is. If people ask you, who is Christ? He is who he is. That's the safest answer you could give. Uh, don't take that too far. I'm kidding. 
That's not evangelism. But he's not who we understand him to be. So in a few moments, we're going to walk through three core facts of who Christ is and why our misunderstanding often leads us into very bad beliefs. But we struggle with this. this. This issue I've laid out here, we struggle with this because mainly we just have preconceived ideas that we bring to the table. We assume we know things about Christ. We create daily bread theology from a devotion we read one morning when in reality we didn't even study the context of the passage. When a book was written 2,000 years ago in an entirely different context that were written by Jews who actually perceived things completely different than you did. Now, it's beautiful that we have so many resources now that makes it possible to study that. But in the midst of laziness, we just take one verse and we, we say we understand Christ, and then we end up where we are now. So here's the question for today. What are we bringing to Christ that is getting in the way of us truly understanding him? Excuse me. I've been a bit under the weather the past week and a half. Ugh. What are we bringing to Christ that is getting in the way of us understanding who he truly is? That's the question. So think about this as we go. Let's start, all right? The first attribute is Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord, okay? We're going to look at a few scriptures here. Luke 2.11 says this. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We just read this. It was Christmas time, okay? Romans 10.9 says this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Revelation 17, 14, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And then Colossians 1, 15 through 19. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is foundational to who Christ is. Christ is Lord. Now what we're saying here is, is that Christ is simply the full manifestation of God in human flesh and is supreme over all creation. That's what we're saying when we say Christ is Lord. That God did not spare any qualities or presence when divinely interrupting the world, which we celebrated a few weeks ago. Therefore, because we, this, this is so central, we have to focus on this when we begin our study of Christ, that Christ is Lord. Millions of people believe all the right things about Christ, but don't confess this. And when it isn't believed, it undermines the entire belief system. More so, I would argue that most Christians struggle to affirm this statement. We will put it on a little wooden cross in our front yard, but truly living a life of this truth is something entirely different. 
See, we take passages like the Philippians 2 passage where it says Christ gave up divine privilege and begin to believe that perhaps he wasn't fully God. Perhaps he appeared to be God. When in reality, Christ not was, but still is fully God in human flesh. Look back at Colossians with me. <laughs> Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ is the image, the fullness, the complete picture, the human view of the invisible God. All things revolve around him. He is the creator, the sustainer. He preceded all things with the Father and Spirit as the one eternal being. He is king over all and holds all authority over all things. That doesn't fit into a Hallmark card. This is huge. Do we treat Christ understanding this? Or do we see Christ as just the sweeter, kinder son of a wrathful, emotionless father? There are two treatments of Christ. Either he's completely God or he's completely man. When he was fully both, 100% both. Verse 18 of Colossians tells us this. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and he is the head of the body, the church. <coughs> He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For in him, the fullness of God was and is pleased to dwell. Dwell is a very intentional word meaning here. It means place of permanent residence. Because God has always been fully manifested in Jesus Christ. However, this, this is kind of how we see Christ's time on earth, I think, a lot of times. We kind of see it as stagecraft or theatrics. Like, oh, time to walk on water. Let me turn on my godness. <laughs> oh, time to, time to uh, weep because with, with, John the Baptist died. Let me turn on my humanity. When in reality, Christ didn't have an on and off switch by which he could decide which part of his being he wanted to be. He was fully God and fully man, and he had to be in order to redeem us. Which leads into our next attribute. Christ is man. Oh, it's going to get good. 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 2 John 7. <clears throat> For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. That which, First uh, John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Notice how tangible and how all the sensory language in that verse there, because it's physical. Hebrews 2, 9. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Philippians 2.7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Galatians 4.4, 4. but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, 
born of a woman, born under the law. Luke 2.52 again. Or excuse me, not again. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the only verse we have on Jesus' childhood, but it's pretty insane that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature with the Father. Did you know Jesus grew up? Did you know that he grew in knowledge? That he was parented? John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14. And God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Excuse me. Christ, while being fully God, is fully man. This passage written by John, we, they, they consider John to be the theologians of the Gospels. This passage, these were the first words that he chose to write to his audience. It's eloquent, it's beautiful, and it focuses on one thing, Jesus in world. There's, that's intentional. It's intentional. It draws you in. When you read this, you're like, wow, we give John to a lot of new believers because it's, it's an easy read. It's simple. It gets to the point of Jesus. And this first scripture draws you in. You're like, what is this? What is this, this God becoming man thing? It's so different. Christ, while being fully God, is fully man. There are few things as sweet as that phrase. Before we, we dive into this study the next several weeks, we have to get to a point where we can jointly state this, that Christ, being the fullness of God, entered into the fallen humanity and perfected it. That is correct. Jesus entered into the world in fallen flesh. Now, being Christ, being fully God, his holiness perfected it. It perfected humanity at the moment that he was united with humanity. However, it's necessary to realize that he entered into this world really, truly in the fallen experience because Christ became human in order to reveal himself to us and ultimately save us. As one of my favorite church fathers states, Gregory of Nan, I can't say it, Christ cannot save what he has not assumed. Christ cannot save what he has, in other words, Christ can't save what he hasn't become. Christ entered humanity and went through the entire ex human experience fulfilling prophecy and doing it perfectly. Christ is the perfect human. He's the only one who did it. He perfected humanity. There, 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 there's an area where we trip in on this. This is where we trip on this section in studying Christ. See, we would all in this room, I'm sure, in, 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 in Christianity, 
would say that Christ is absolutely the salvation of our sin, and, and he really experienced what we experience. And that's Hebrews 4. We just read it. However, what we really wrestle with is truly believing that Christ in his perfection is an attainable example. We believe that he's so far off that when we study him, we can't really become like him. And in the point of being human is to say, look, I am becoming sin so you can become righteousness. Luke 2.52 again. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He actually grew up as a child. Matthew 4, his temptation. At the end of his temptation, he was exhausted. And it says that this one sentence, which I think is one of the craziest in Scripture, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Have you ever tempta felt temptation so bad that angels had to come and minister to you? Have you ever experienced temptation so intense that you had nothing left physically? You were exhausted, you hadn't eaten, you hadn't drank, you had given up all your authority, you are simply broken, and angels had to come and minister to you because there was nothing left. And yet we somehow believe that Christ isn't relatable. When in reality, we sometimes aren't relatable to him because he experienced this way beyond what we did. <laughs> this is huge. See, to understand that Christ actually lived and he actually changed human history as we know it, it takes out the mysticism from Christianity. Case in point, when we talk about getting in the word or growing in Christ in our culture, we are usually saying that we're going to turn on worship music, make a cup of coffee, open scripture, and meditate quietly until we have some sort of Old Testament prophet experience. In fact, the concept of alone time with God didn't even exist until after the Enlightenment and Second Great Awakening in the 1800s. Didn't even exist. It's when modern individualism started becoming popular and preachers began teaching that your relationship is really just between you and Christ and the church kind of took a back burner place. Don't get me wrong, quiet time is vital <laughs> to your relationship with Christ. Don't stop reading scripture. But scripture calls the church Christ's body for a reason. Because Christ, being human flesh, is foundational to our faith that, on the contrary, when we talk about spirituality, it's rarely ever physical. In fact, much of the time when, we, when people say they desire to grow in Christ, they aren't desiring to learn more about Christ. They're actually desiring to experience the emotions of a former spiritual peak. This is important to realize because our culture, more than ever, has moved into hyper-spirituality and has backed up from physical, tangible flesh. The real, real experience. It's not important anymore. This is a denial of the entire teachings of Christ. Christ is and always has been about being physically and human and real and tangible. Even in the time of David, before Christ became man, even in the time of David, David wrote, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We take communion together periodically because we must be reminded that Christ is human. And in his humanity, we were saved. Therefore, in communion, we are symbolically saying, I'm tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. That's why Christ said, eat of my flesh. 
So we symbolically do this to be reminded that man, Christ was actually man. He actually did this. Like, like I know I'm 2,000 years apart, but like, as I take this, this crunchy, dry piece of bread, I'm blown away by how real this is. <laughs> In other words, when we begin studying Christ and reading about his life, whether this be in the church or in our own devotional time, which keep doing, <laughs> we must, we must, we must continually affirm that Christ is man. We are not just saying that he was a man, but he remains to be man. Christ resurrected in the body that was beaten on the cross. Christ ascended to the Father in the body that was beaten. He has scars to this day. And he sits at the right hand of the Father praying on our behalf. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word logos here, uh, in the Greek, that literally means discourse or reason. It's translated as a proper noun here, uh, take it back to elementary school, proper noun is like a name. It's translated as a proper noun here in every translation as Lord Jesus because it's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now if you read a Jehovah's Witness Bible, they take it as a God. Now, there's literally no translation or no situation in the Greek where that actually works. It was really cool studying that. There's none. Um, but this, this translation here, in every translation is a proper noun because it's referring to Christ. And, and notice in this verse, it's perfect, still up there. Notice all of the tangible, like, physical language here. Became, dwelt, among us, we have seen. Like, things you can actually sense. You can see. You can taste. You can feel. Dear ones, one of the unique qualities of Jesus is how he made himself visible. He made himself known. He taught people about his father and looked his disciples in the eyes. That's one thing Jesus loved to do. And his, and his disciples continue that in Acts. I don't remember, if, I, I believe it was Peter and, uh, and Paul, or not Paul, Peter and John, I think, were walking, and there was a beggar outside the temple, and it says that he looked, Peter looked him in the eyes. It's physical, it's real. The gospel is inherently physical because our God is physical in Jesus Christ. This goes against everything that our culture likes to do in compartmentalizing spirituality and non-physical reality. Because of this truth, we can, we can also attempt to actually model our lives after Christ. Because Christ actually lived as a human. He, like, so much, like, listen to these questions. Think, have you ever thought about this? Because Christ was human, we can ask these. How did Christ sleep? How do you think he approached sleep? Was it a way to kind of lament life? How did Christ treat his parents? Was it with respect? Or was he like, bro, I'm God? Or this one's a hard one in the Baptist circles. How did Christ eat? Do you think he ate a lot before he was crucified? Or do you think he just did it for sustenance? No, don't get carried away with becoming like Christ. 
I've seen some of those at Moody and, and at Southwestern. You can definitely get carried away with being Christ-like. Don't start wearing robes. Don't grow your hair out. <laughs> the point I'm trying to make here is he was actually human. He actually slept. He actually ate. He actually lived life perfectly. So when you want to look at an example of how to perfect humanity, don't look at a recent magazine on how to become a fitter person. Look at Jesus Christ because he perfected humanity. He was perfect. He did it. We constantly look for a perfect human, and it isn't in Hollywood, it isn't in Washington, it's in the Bible, and his name's Jesus, and it's really big right there, <laughs> in case you forget. <laughs> There's one more attribute we need to talk about. Excuse me for a second. <coughs> it's Christ as Savior. First Timothy says this, 2.5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's just a big word that means Christ fulfilled the wrath of God. Luke 2.11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who, do, who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Last one, 2 Corinthians 5.21, please read this slowly. If you could only read one verse of God in all of scripture, I actually believe this would probably be one of the top ones I'd pick. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is not just talking about the crucifixion. It's talking about a life of sacrifice that he lived on our behalf, that when we are united to him in salvation, I am united to him in his obedience to God. I am united to Christ in the way he respected his parents. I am united to the Christ in his entire perfect humanity. That's why they can call me perfect. Because Christ was perfect, not because I've done anything, I haven't. Because Christ is fully God and fully man, he is the only candidate to actually be able to acquire salvation for all of humanity. Christ did the work for us in life and death so that upon belief in him, we receive eternal salvation that through his spirit and his body allows us to share in all the work that he has done. All of it. In fact, have you thought about this? Dad and I were talking about this yesterday. Have you ever thought about how your uniting to Christ is influenced by the ascension when Christ ascended to the heavens? You never really think about that, do you? It's just kind of that part of Matthew 28 you read over quickly. When in reality, we can look to the ascension and say, man, I'm united to Christ, so I, I too can look forward to the day where I am lifted to my heavenly Father. We're united to that. It's not fluff. You read my theology papers, there's a lot of fluff. That's not fluff. It's really true. I hope my professors weren't watching. Oh, I believe me, they know. <laughs> <laughs> Christ has given salvation to all who come to him in belief. This is a beautiful, precious thing, but there's one cultural thing we have to address. That is, we have to stop making salvation whatever we want it to be. 
I know you've heard a lot of sermons on that. It's not going away. So we're going to keep talking about it. And it probably won't go away until Jesus returns. So we're going to keep talking about it. We've got to stop making salvation whatever we want it to be. Christ was born of a virgin, perfected 33 years of humanity, revealing his Father to all who will listen. He died, he rose, he ascended to the Father, where he now sits praying for us. All of this restored the relationship between God and man, (coughs) excuse me, in the way that the law of Moses could not. Jesus made it clear that the method of salvation is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe that God rose him from the dead, and allow Christ to have authority over your life. That is salvation. This then leads to a life of growth in him, being purged from the messiness of fallen humanity that remains in our flesh. We'll still feel temptation. We'll still feel exhausted. We're still going to feel sick. We're still going to die. It's going to be horrible. But the whole point is he's saving us from this in the process of being human. It's a process. Like, salvation, that that instantaneous part of salvation, like this part, like that's, that's it. Great, you were saved you got a life to live. Like, we focus on this, and that's great. It's, it's a monumental moment in your life, but we don't, we don't capitalize on this. And so we have a lot of believers walking away from faith because they have no idea how to take on the world. <clears throat> the early church did a thing called catechesis. It's a huge word. They would basically teach new believers. They would actually say new believers couldn't even be baptized until they could tell what, who Christ was. They did it because they knew if believers were just given scriptures and not taught anything, it's going to be horrible for the church. Because if you, I don't know if you've tried reading scripture on your own, it's very like hard. (laughs) You're going to come up some weird stuff. The point is the church has always been a part of being part of each other's relationships so we can grow one another in the salvation process. Now, but not yet. It's something that I've been talking about. It's a phrase that, that goes through like, academia of, of, of studying scriptures because it simply means we have salvation now, but it's also not yet. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of this duality. Just as Christ is man and God, we also, we're saved, we're kind of being saved. And if you were to say, how does that work? I don't know. None of us will until, until the end times. But this is what salvation is not, okay? We're just going to go through a few things because I like, I like railing about theology. It is not walking an aisle. It is not receiving a divine gift and exercising, ex- exercising that gift for a congregation. It is not being brought to tears from inspira- inspiring worship. It is not universal because God is love. It is not societal redemption. It is not liberation from poverty or oppression. Dear ones, we have to run from the temptation of making Christ work as Savior culturally or spiritually relevant. Maybe we're irrelevant. You ever think about that? There is one way to salvation. His name is Jesus. It's right there. And God made him to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Christ as Savior means that he is mediator. This is a very important word. Not moderator. Mediator. A mediator is different from a moderator in that a mediator is mutually invested in two parties. A lawyer is not a mediator. A lawyer is, is, is only interested in one party. That's the person they're representing. A mediator has investments in both sides. Now, if we could come up with a person who had investment in both God and man, Jesus. He's a mediator. 
that the divine and the humanity are actually able to be united because God and man were united in Christ. Therefore, when we are studying Christ, we have to remember that his job as Savior is to fulfill prophecy and to unite God and man once again, that he is the method and means of salvation, that he is both sacrificer and sacrifice, that he is prophecy and prophet, messenger and message, king and servant. We must remember this, and we have how deeply rooted in Christ's humanity and his godness that it is. This is salvation. And if we don't remember it, if we forget it, every single time salvation will become a human practice. Every time. Not just legalism. It could be neglecting salvation. You, you name it. Every single time, if we don't remember this, we're going to try to do it ourselves. Christ is Lord. Christ is man. Christ is Savior. One of my favorite creeds. I wrote it. Christ is Lord, Christ is man, Christ is Savior. So, I have to ask the question what will get in the way of you seeing Christ as he really is? All of us have assumptions and histories that will mar our perspective, and we must expose those. I'm going to give you a 30 second seminary class. You ready? The first step in studying scripture is figuring out how you're going to mess it up. I'm serious. I had to write a paper on why my upbringing will mess up the way I see scripture. It was very difficult because I only had a page and I had a lot to say. <laughs> that was funny. That's the only part of this sermon I want on recording. <clears throat> We have to see the areas where we're going to get it wrong. It could be our background, our ethnicity, our wealth, our lack of wealth, our worldview, our politics, you name it. It's going to be something that gets in the way. That's why Christ says, pick up your cross and follow me. You've got to deny yourself. So here's some questions. I'm just a few ideas I came up with. Is it your family experience that emphasizes isolation, causing you to not really understand what it means to be united? Did you grow up in a family that, that was isolated from one another, so to be united to someone and united to a church is just kind of beyond comprehension for you? Is it multiple marriages that have caused you to have a hard time trusting Christ's covenantal relationship with you? Is it wealth that causes you to struggle with true giving of heart, not just money? Is it busyness that makes you think it's possible to enjoy Christ outside of slow worship music when Christ wants you to enjoy his presence in your life in the busyness? Have your kids gone away that you do not support and you have a hard time understanding why Christ's providence would allow such a thing? Have you achieved successes in life that cause you to struggle with sharing and giving glory to God so Christ's sacrificial sharing of life with you is actually impossible for you to see? Is a relationship with Christ where you aren't the center of it, kind of beyond comprehension? Have you surrounded yourself in a culture of ethnic and cultural divisions that has caused you to not see the beauty of Christ's work and provide unity through all nations and races? Are you seeking a different gender or sexual orientation because that's how you were born and how God made you, which has caused you to lose focus on Christ as a whole, and now your whole world is simply validating an ideology that Christ didn't teach? See, the list goes on and on and on. We all have stuff that gets in the way. And I beg you, dear ones, 
myself included, prayerfully during the study and in the rest of your life, prayerfully ask yourself, what is getting in the way of you and Christ becoming one? Of you seeing Christ? I was taught in seminary that knowledge of self, the not knowing yourself, actually begins with knowing God. That I can't actually see myself until I truly see God. I'll be blind to myself. Have you ever done something wrong you didn't even know about it? If you've done it once, you should be scared to approach scriptures. Don't be scared, you know what I mean. Follow me here. Ask that God is going to break these down. God can redeem all people from all nations, from all backgrounds, growing them in the likeness of himself. That This is learning about Christ. It's, it's grounded on humility, prayer, and hard work. Hard work, not in I have to spend hours over boring books. You don't have to do that. Hard work in that I simply have to deny myself. It is a daunting and often uncomfortable task, but I promise you, Studying Christ as scripture portrays him will be the most profitable thing you can ever do. There were a few times in my, in my biblical education where I got back to my room and I just, I didn't even know what I didn't, I, I realized oh, so much that I didn't know that I was scared to start talking again. I was like, wow, how did I not know that? There's that common phrase, you don't know what you don't know. That's very common around Bible school. Of course, theologians think they know everything, so that's a different conversation. With all of this said, there's one more thing to emphasize. I know I've railed on a lot of things here. Follow me here. Among all the misconceptions and all the misunderstandings that can come from studying Christ, this should never push you away from desiring to study him. It is so fun. There's always more to study. The closer you get to God, the bigger he gets. The fact is there are no bad questions or thoughts when it comes to desiring a greater understanding of who Jesus was. There will be times you might ask a question and we'll say, we love you, but don't ask that again. I'm just kidding. We're not going to say that. But as we study this, we have to dive in headfirst. We, we have to want to do this. It's really, really fun. I promise. And what you, what the, what you grow in learning who Christ really was changes the way you view your spirituality. Because it's no longer just, just a part of your day Man, because it's so physical and real, it actually can become my day. So start studying Christ. Read the Gospels. Read Acts. Gosh, Acts is so good. I just finished through Acts a few months ago. Read Paul's letters. Read the Old Testament. The whole scope of Scripture points right to Christ. As you read through the Bible this year, ask yourself how each text is relating to the big narrative of Christ, the big story when you don't understand something, ask someone. Ask. That's what the church is for. We are here to help one another. We don't do that a lot of times. We don't. We're scared to ask stuff. And maybe it's because the church has done a bad job of helping one another. But ask. On Wednesdays, on Sundays, ask questions. We need the church. When it comes to studying... Christ. We need each other. We need one another to see Christ outside of our perspective. To get away from the unavoidable assumptions that we bring. If you're wealthy, you need a brother or sister who has struggled with poverty to see Christ from that perspective. 
If you're a man, you need women to help you see it from their perspective and vice versa. If you're white, black, Mexican, you need to see scripture from other cultures and ethnicities. It's different, believe me. And it's awesome because we are all one body. That's the point. I love Revelation. All nations, all races. The point is all of us come together and share what we're seeing in this. And there's different perspectives that come from different backgrounds. And every culture has a different background. We need each other in this way. A Christian relationship with God is not found five minutes in the morning with a cup of coffee. It is found in the church. It always has been found in the church. We study alone so that we can edify the church together. That's the reason we've really studied. That's the reason we've always studied alone, is so that we can come to church, come together, having something to say. But I think we've often made church the thing that helps us in our quiet time. That's, that's just a problem. So lean on one another, trust one another, grow in one another. Please, it's awesome. God is going to do so, so much. Because we need one another, we've got to deny ourselves. Because I guarantee you, even in this room, there's things we probably don't like about each other. But we need one another. Larry Brevard has a lot of things to teach me about Christ. He has a lot. I need him to show me what I'm not seeing. I've lived a very good life. I haven't really, really suffered. But to know what it looks like to see Christ from the perspective of suffering would grow me so much. So let's get to work. There was a video when I entered Moody that we were shown. It talked about how hard it's going to be, how exhausted you're going to be, you're going to hate it. Let's get to work. Let's get to work. We got a lot to do. Whether you've been a Christian for 40 minutes or 40 hours, we've got a lot of work to do. I'm very excited. We're going to study this together. We're going to grow together. I'm going to learn stuff. You're going to learn stuff. I'm going to say stuff I shouldn't have said. You're going to say stuff that you probably should have said that I needed to hear. It's going to be good. So I'm going to pray for this study. And then, uh, and then Dad's going to come up. But I plead with you, dear ones, start reading the Gospels. Come to church ready to talk about Christ. Our Bible study times, I'm praying for them. They're going to be so fun. We've got a lot, a lot to talk about. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, denying ourselves is so hard. Growing in you is so difficult. God, help purge us of laziness or or lukewarmness, God. Help us just grow in you. God, to, to just, just convict us of what's wrong, grow us in what's right, and help us see Christ as he is. Help us grow in his likeness, not just morally, but in integrity, in worldview, in the way he treated humanity. Thank you so much for this body who wants to actually serve one another, who wants to grow together, Lord. Thank you for everything that, that, that you've done in this place. God, I pray that you spark 
this church on to, to, with energy to study these scriptures and study you diligently and use one another and lean on one another. And God, at the end of the day, I pray, remind us that we have to return to your word as our core authority. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. That's Pastor Dad to you. <laughs> Did you hear him talk about you guys? You didn't raise him well, I'll tell you what. So we shall. Uh, and I, I want to echo a couple things about what Zach said. <clears throat> There's a reason why churches have a lot of feel-good stuff, because it feels good. To actually study the scriptures and find out that Jesus was the wine steward at a wedding is not very, is not very uh, what shall I say, Bible beltish. Uh, to find out that it was alcoholic. There was alcohol in it. To find that Jesus actually poked people in the ribs, intentionally doing miracles on days that it would offend the religious people of his day. It's hard to swallow. To find out that Jesus didn't come to make you happy, but to accomplish his will, and in doing that, redeem you. To find out you're not the most important person in God's universe, he is, and his, his mercy and his grace makes that your transformation significant. It's hard to hear. There's not a story in the Gospels that hasn't, um, that at some point, there, there is not a story, Let's, how do I say this again? There is a story for every emotion you've had, for every feeling you've had about Jesus, for every frustration you had, there is a story in the Gospels dealing with that. And one of those stories is about Peter who continually rebuked Jesus because Jesus was doing things that drove people away. And Peter went to Jesus and he says, don't you realize that the crowds are leaving? And Jesus' response was, you going to follow? Well, no, why not? Because there's nobody else in whom to find eternal life. Good for you, Peter. The Holy Spirit taught you that. Now shut up and follow me. Not a happy message, but a true message. So that's what we're going to do this year. We're going to study Jesus as written in a Jewish-Roman historical context spending emphasis on what's going on in the story and why it's being said and why are the people wrestling with it and how did the religious right-wing people of their day react to it, people who are nationalistic, who is Jesus, why is he doing what he's doing, how does he relate to his mother. They're gonna, we're going to answer a lot of questions and we're going to create questions there are no answers for. But I promise you this, if you have courage, you'll know more about Jesus than you've ever known before, not because I'm good or Zach's good, but because the Word of God is good. It will be our final authority, which is becoming rare in evangelicalism, okay? I just want you to know that. It's becoming rarer and rarer that the Bible is final authority. It will be our plumb line, and we will hold tightly to it. We will hold it like it's our lifeblood, the Word of God. And if you courageously en engage that with us, you will leave Bible, uh, our messages, and you'll go into Bible study, and you will wrestle with your poor shepherds. You will ask them questions that they cannot answer, and you will study together. And you will go home and you will quiz your family because you will not understand how a story is the way it is. And you never heard that thing in the little details just like you learned about the Old Testament. But I will assure you one thing, you will meet God as He is. Because we all come to the table with prejudices, every one of us, and God wants to remove those. So, it's about Jesus. It really, really, really is about Jesus. It's not about church attendance. It's, it's not about money. It's not about bigger, flashier, better. It's, it's, it's about Jesus. And if this is gone, there's no reason for us to invest money and time in this. There really isn't. 
And my prayer for 2019 is that we would be sure that every time we meet, if Jesus didn't meet with us, we will know it because we will find it empty, worthless, and depressing. It is a sad day when the church can exist without the preeminent involvement of a sovereign God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is fully man, and He's fully the Savior. All right, thanks for this morning. Bible study is going to start in about five minutes. If you don't have one, we'd like to take you to one. We'll introduce you. See you next Sunday. God bless you guys. Everything starts this week, so Wednesday nights and everything else. Tuesday morning for men. Have a great day.